we think about the work of Christ on the cross and our response to that, we want to think specifically about the power of God in our salvation. We know that God is powerful. We know that He has uh, enacted mighty works and uh, through the ages has healed people, right? raised people to life. We know stories of these things. We saw them happen during Jesus' time on the earth when we were studying the Gospel of John together. And here in Acts chapter 3, we have another example of this incredible power. As we look to God's power, sometimes we begin to wonder in our own lives, am I seeing the power of God, right? You see a a lame man healed like this. Why isn't God's power at work in my life in that way? I I have this ache in my back this morning. Have you ever slept funny on your pillow or whatever? And, uh, you know, you can't turn your head. Certainly your mind is up or down. So I can't go all the way up and I can't go all the way down today, right? Why? Why, Lord? Come on, where's your power? Just, just heal this. I know you can heal this, Lord. Take away my pain in the neck, <laughs> literally. And yet, it's still there. There are things in your life that you face, and, and maybe you've wondered, well, where's the power of God in this circumstance, in this trial, in this difficulty? Why isn't God working the way I thought He would work? The answer to that is that, in fact, God is working powerfully because it's God's prerogative to work as He pleases, to do as He wishes. And we know by faith that God always does what is good and what is right. And so, in God's sovereign plan, it was His good plan that I'd have a pain in the neck today. For my growth, my sanctification, maybe just a sermon illustration. I don't know. But the Lord has His plans. And we see His power when we trust in His name. This is the lesson of Acts chapter 3, that God is still powerfully at work today. Not always in the ways we ask or the ways that we want or the ways we wish we would see it, but He is at work in powerful ways. And we connect to that power. We see that power. We live that power when we look to His name in faith. Notice how this unfolds as we work through Acts chapter 1. And we'll see this theme played out. God is working powerfully through faith in Jesus Christ. God is working powerfully through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 3 begins with this amazing act of power, right? We, we heard it read for us, and hopefully your mind could sort of imagine the scene as, as, as this was being read for us. Peter and John are going to the temple to worship, and this was their common practice. Even after converting to Christ and trusting in Christ as Savior, they would still go to the temple and worship God, and there were often three hours of prayer through the day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. Here, they're attending at the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. Typically, they counted from sunrise, so three in the afternoon. And as they're approaching the temple, there's a man who has been lame 
from his mother's womb, which just as an interesting side note, Dr. Luke affirms that this man was a real person with personhood, even from in his mother's womb, and he was lame from that point. Before he was born, even, his ankles and feet did not form correctly, and Dr. Luke will point out later exactly which parts were healed as this man was able to walk. Forty-plus years, the next chapter will tell us, Acts 4.22, this man was over 40 years old, which interestingly means that maybe he had been there on one of the days that Jesus visited the temple and yet hadn't been healed. We know Jesus didn't heal everyone. His healing ministry was a sign of his identity, that he was the Messiah, and so too with this healing ministry. Peter and John encounter this man, and he's there with his, you know, clay jar. It wasn't a can. It wasn't a cup. You know, I don't know what he had exactly to collect his money. Maybe just a rug out in front of him where he asked people to drop their their coins or whatever else as he's begging there outside the temple. And there's this interesting contrast between this lame man. We, We don't know exactly how he looked, but you can imagine a beggar there right by the beautiful gate, ornate and gorgeous, one of the most ornate gates of the temple, hence the name, real creative name there, right? Of the beautiful gate. And there's this man right outside the gate begging for alms, begging for money. Peter and John encounter him, and we follow the story there in verse 3. Peter and John look at him in verse 4. And it's interesting, this word for looking at the man is a strong word. Peter fixes his eyes on the man. And there's, there's a point in Paul's ministry, later in the book of Acts, we'll come across it when this happens, and Acts chapter 14 verse 9 says this, Paul, observing him, actually also a lame man, uh, intently, observing him intently, and seeing he had faith to be healed. Maybe that's what's happening here as Peter gazes on this man. Will this one believe in Jesus? Peter asks for the man's attention. Look at us, he says. And so the man lifts his eyes to Peter and John. And of course, if somebody's interacting with a beggar, what does the beggar expect? Well, I'm going I'm to get something here. And probably not expecting to be healed. Maybe, it's possible, but probably not expecting to be healed. He's probably just expecting the gift of some kind of money. Peter dashes those hopes pretty quickly. Gold and silver, I do not have. <laughs> Uh, well, then why would you ask for my attention? Peter says, what I do have, I'm going to give to you. And the Spirit in that moment chooses to work through Peter and John. Peter is able then to heal this man in the name of Jesus Christ. And he calls the man to stand up. Peter reaches out a hand. I don't think necessarily because the man needed help up. But to just encourage him, hey, look, trust me, this is really happening. It's time to get up. And so helps the man up and he's walking, leaping and praising God. Verse 7, Luke, our writer, highlights for us that uh, his feet and ankle bones receive strength. And I can almost imagine Luke, you know, imagining the structure of the foot. and Oh, yes, it was that tendon and that ankle bone that needed to be moved and put in a place. And God did that. And that's what healed the man who was deformed from birth and could not walk. 
And God gave him strength that moment. And now, not only just the strength, but the skill and balance to hold himself up on his two feet. And he's leaping and praising God. He enters the temple for the first time in his life by his own strength. Now, verse 9 points out that others see what is happening here. They know this man. Forty years he sat outside this gate. And his worshipers would come day after day. They'd see him day after day. I mean, they know what this guy looks like. And now he's standing and walking and leaping, giving praise to God. And so this crowd begins to gather. Verse 10, as they recognize him, this one who sat begging at the beautiful gate, They were filled with wonder and amazement, and the crowd gathers to see what had happened. This act of power draws a crowd as people want to see what is going on. So as this story begins to unfold, it starts with what seems like the beginning and end of its own little story. A lame man is healed, but that's actually not the point of this story. It leads to something greater because what we see in the healing of the lame man is the power of God. And the question on everybody's minds is, how did this happen? How in the world did this happen, that this lame man was healed? Whose power was this? And how was it poured out? And these are the questions that Peter will begin to answer as he begins to speak to them in the next section. But here in the opening of this account, we see number one today, that when we see God's power at work in people's lives, we should marvel. God is working powerfully through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we see that power, amazement is the right response. Now at first we think, well, why aren't we seeing Lame men walk again. Well, God certainly could do that today if He wanted to, but we know that these kinds of signs and wonders were for the apostles. God had said through Christ that this is what He would do, that during their initial ministry, the apostles, those who had been with Jesus and were sent by Jesus to take His word, that they would have power from on high to do these same kinds of miracles to show that the words they were speaking were the words of God the words of the Messiah, and that people should believe. And so as people saw the power of God in this healing miracle, they were to look to the Word of God through the apostles. Maybe you've uh, sought out a, a powerful remedy to a problem you've had in the past, some kind of health issue, and so you've been searching for something that will work. I'll just use the example of hiccups. You can't really call it like a health problem, but it's sometimes something you you get, right? And whatever the technical reason for it, this spasm of the diaphragm, or who who knows exactly, I don't know why it's all happening, but you get the hiccups and you just can't seem to get rid of them. So it's like, okay, internet, help me out. How do I get rid of hiccups? And of course, everybody has their own theory, right? Some say you just hold your breath for a certain amount of time. But then that doesn't work for you. Okay, we got to find another solution here. Somebody told me one time, you, you drink a cup of water upside down. Just try that, right? You, you like put the lip of the cup on your upper lip and you tip over until you drink water. 
I know by experience you get water everywhere, okay? So this is just what happens. Up your nose and maybe it works on the hiccups, but it's just a mess. So you're still searching for the best remedy. Everyone has their theories. We could probably survey a bunch of theories on how to get rid of hiccups right here in this room right now. I will say my favorite theory was taught to me by my wife. For the first time ever, I'd heard of this theory. She told me that the way to get rid of hiccups is to eat a spoonful of peanut butter. I don't know if it works, but I love peanut butter. <laughs> and so my method is just to prevent hiccups by eating peanut butter. And so whenever I think they might be coming on time for a spoonful of peanut butter, but she swears by it. And indeed, I can witness to the fact that if she gets hiccups and eats a spoonful of peanut butter, they go away. I don't know. Who knows how it works? You try it if you want to. The point is there's all sorts of theories on what will work and what won't work and what has power to get rid of the hiccups. And, I mean, you name the health issue. Hiccups aren't really a health issue. But you name the scenario, and there are theories out there about what you can do to get rid of that health problem. But does it really work? Some do, some don't. It's still out there. One sign of our desire for powerful remedies is actually medicine itself. Have you ever gone to the, the pharmacy or you know, get some over-the-counter medicine? Everything these days is maximum strength. Why? Because we want something powerful and effective, right? Give me the absolute maximum you're allowed to give me. That's what I want to solve my problem. Maximum strength. We want something powerful to work. This is what we're after, but not everything works the way it claims to work. But when we see God work in His power, it is right for us to respond with praise and worship, like the lame man who was now leaping and praising God, like the crowd who saw, wait a second, this is the guy who was for 40 years, he was here, and now he's leaping around, and so they too marvel and worship. The thing is, while we may not see the lame leaping, being healed of their injuries or deformities, God is at work today in powerful ways. Though the signs of the apostles have ended as this era of the apostles is over. They're gone. We have the scriptures today. God is not choosing to work in those same ways that he did through the apostles. God is still at work in powerful ways. And so begin to look for his work around you. When you are convicted of sin in your heart, you're experiencing the powerful work of God. When you see someone repent of their sin to turn from their ways and to turn to Christ, you are watching the miraculous power of God. When you experience God's forgiveness to wash away your sin or the forgiveness of a brother or sister in Christ, God just worked an eternal miracle. When you see a brother or sister demonstrate sacrifice and love for the good of another, you are seeing God's power at work. When you see an older saint trust the Lord through the death of their spouse, you are watching the powerful work of God. See, His power is at work around us at all times. 
in us, changing us into the image of Christ. And while God can do those outward works as well, His most powerful works are the works He does in our hearts. Who of us can change a person's heart? No one. But God does. And He's doing it all the time. And we look right past it. We don't pause to reflect and to rejoice in the work of God that we see around us and to praise Him. As we'll see this story unfold, we'll learn that this layman did indeed trust in the Lord. And I think, I would submit to you that that was actually the most powerful miracle in verses 1 through 10. Not just the healing of the ankles so the man could leap. His ankles would, would decay again. This lame man died not too long from here. I mean, he's already 40. So in this period of history, he had maybe another 30 years to live. And his ankles would quit working again. No, the the most powerful miracle was the transformation of this man's heart. I, I think Luke even points that out to us. Notice how Luke notes the miracle in verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. And he repeats it again in verse 9, in case we didn't catch it. All the people saw him walking, so there's one miracle, and praising God. So God had done a work in this man's heart, maybe bitter there by the beautiful gates that Jesus hadn't healed him, or that he'd gone 40 years without any help from this, and God transformed his heart not only to leap and walk, but now he's a worshiper of Christ. That's the powerful miracle. And so when we see his power at work, we marvel and we praise. The question then that this begs is, how do we access this power? And I think this is what all the people want to know as they gather around this scene and gather around Peter. How do we access this power? Well, we'll learn secondly this morning that we we access God's power by faith in Jesus as Messiah. And this is important for us to know. God's power works by faith in Jesus as Messiah. At first, the crowd thinks that Peter and John are powerful, but Peter shuts that down in verse 12. He takes the opportunity to begin speaking to them. Men of Israel. So this is an Israelite sermon, kind of like we had back in chapter 2. Why do you marvel at this? As if they had the power, that it was their power or godliness. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not it at all. It's not by our own power or godliness that this happened. Who did this? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. So, Peter's relating to them as a fellow Israelite, saying, guys, this is God's power. And already their minds should be going back to the Old Testament because there were predictions in the Old Testament that the Messiah would make the lame to walk again. And so this should be beginning to click with them. It should have happened all through the life of Christ. And now Peter's giving them another chance. No, it's the name of Jesus. He's the one. That has done this. He has made the lame to walk in. And the whole point of this is to turn their attention to Christ. 
And so in verse 13, he points out, not only was it God's power, but God has glorified Jesus. And so 13 through 15, just notice how focused on Jesus as Messiah these verses are. What has God, the God of Israel, done? He's glorified His servant, Jesus. That phrase, His servant, is already a messianic term used through Isaiah. Chapter 42, chapter 53, a number of passages you could look at, that the Messiah was referred to as the servant, the one who would accomplish God's will. The servant's name, Peter explains, is Jesus. His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, he's reminding them, you crucified him. You delivered him up, you denied him in the presence of Pilate, when Pilate was determined to let him go. Now, as we continue in 13 through 15, I want you to notice some contrasts, some distinctions that Peter sets up. First, he says, God glorified Jesus, you denied Jesus and offered him up to be crucified. So while God was giving Jesus authority, they were denying Jesus' authority. In fact, they even rejected Pilate's authority and demanded that Jesus be crucified. So there's the first contrast. The next one's in verse 14. Peter says, you denied the Holy One and the just, and instead you asked for a murderer. So they took a murderer over the righteous one, the Holy One. Those terms, the the just, the Holy One, are again, messianic terms, names for Christ that point out that indeed He is the Messiah. Finally, in verse 15, they did one last thing that Peter draws this contrast here. They killed the prince of life, right? They put to death the author of life. The, the word prince there is a, is a fine translation of the word. It means the preeminent one, or it can mean even the initiator of something. And so that's maybe some of your translations have the word author. I like that author translation a little bit better because it's this idea that he's the source, the starter of life. In fact, the same word is used in Hebrews 12 when Jesus is called the author of our faith, the initiator, the starter. He has life in himself. And yet they killed him. But then Peter goes on, God raised him from the dead of which we are witnesses. So this is a beautiful gospel presentation. You sinned committing this injustice against the just one, killing the prince of life, denying the one with all authority. And yet, God raised him from the dead. So Peter's explaining how this is all leading to the power of God in verse 16. His name, which is just an interesting statement because he's just listed five names for the Messiah. (laughs) It's all one person. His name, the name above all names, his name through faith in his name. This man has been healed. The power you see comes through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Faith in the Messiah. That's the key to seeing the power of God at work. And so it was faith. That made this man well. And so we find out the man did indeed believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what made him well. And that's what did the even greater miracle of changing his heart and making him into a worshiper. God's power works by faith in Jesus as Messiah. 
Recently, I had an interesting experience at home. A a delivery driver accidentally hit my mailbox and uh, knocked it off the post and onto the ground. And uh, so so there, that happened, right? Uh, Now, they very responsibly uh, uh, let me know. I have a, a video doorbell, and so they walked up to the camera and said, Hi, I'm really sorry. I accidentally did this. Uh, you know, I apologize. You can call this number for help. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll see if it works. And so I called the number somewhat uh, skeptically, wondering if the company would actually follow through and take care of the issue. So I called and talked to somebody who said, yes, you'll get a call within 24 hours. Well, 24-hour passes and nothing happens. Okay, so I called back again. Oh, yes, yes, you'll get a call within 24 hours. And so uh, this time I waited a little longer and I got an email. So, okay, we'll take it. The email led to a form I was supposed to fill out proving that they had uh, caused the problem and uh, showing some evidence of that, you know, pictures or something like that. And then if I was able to prove that they had caused the problem, then they would pay for the repairs. I thought, oh boy, well, we'll see if this works. We'll see if I have enough evidence. So I'm trying to think through how can I prove this? And then I remembered, oh yeah, the video, right? Of the, of the driver uh, basically confessing to the act, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I hit your mailbox, you know? So I thought, oh great, now I got to see if I can pull up that video. And sure enough, I could find the video. I pulled it up. I had the evidence. I uploaded the evidence. I've got all the details. I've got proof that it was their fault. Will you give me payment to cover the damage? So I submitted the form and waited. I don't know. Is it going to work? Are they going to accept it? Are they going to deny it? What's going to happen? day went by, two days went by, three days went by. Okay, well, there's probably no hope. So I began the process of uh, repairing the damage myself and getting it fixed. Finally, I get another email from them. We're going to cover your claim. Hey, it worked. Who knew? I, video evidence was enough. You know? So they, they covered uh, the cost of a new mailbox. All right, still need to replace it myself, but we'll get to that at some point. So the claim process actually worked, and that was the specific way that I could access the funds needed to repair the damage. This is the way God works with His power. The way we access His power, the way we connect with His work is by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is why we so often struggle with this, because the way we want it to work is that we kind of have our plans for what God's power should do, right? And so we think of God's power as sort of like an outlet, you know, in our garage. So I just plug into it, and then I can use the tool however I want to get the job done that I'm trying to get done. But God's power works through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, which is an entirely different way of looking at things. It's not saying, oh, I just want to wield this power how I want in my life, but instead of wielding, I'm yielding. I trust in His name that Jesus is the Savior, Messiah, King. That His power is not to be wielded by me. That's not why I access His power, so I can get done what I want to get done. No, no, no. I come to Him because He's the Savior. I yield to Him because He's the one with all authority, not to be denied. I come to Him because He's the Holy One and just, not to be done with as I please, to murder and deceive and lie. 
You see, this is what coming to God through faith in the name of Jesus Christ means. That's how we access His power. And it's not so that we can just do what we want with it. It's so that we say to Him, not my will, but your will be done. And then we do see His power. This is how God works. God has chosen to work through His Son, And that begins by faith in this one who is called the servant of God, Jesus, the one who saves, the Holy One, without sin, divine, sinless from the beginning, just, always doing what is righteous, the author of life, eternally existing in the Godhead from eternity past, the source of life itself, who himself conquered death and is our hope for life evermore. This is the one we trust. In His name, we put our faith. Now, in verses 17 and 18, Peter makes an interesting uh, statement to them. And it helps us to see this, number three this morning. That we need to recognize that despite our sin, God keeps His promises in Jesus. This is the beauty of trusting in the name of Jesus Christ. That it's actually not based on us handling it appropriately. Peter, in verses 13 through 15 really just slammed these guys with the way they denied God's servant Jesus. The way they asked for a murderer instead of the holy one, the just one. And the way they killed the prince of life. Peter just hammers them with their sin. But notice what he does in verses 17 and 18. He says, yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter's saying, look, you were doing all these things to deny and to reject and to kill God's Messiah, and yet God used your evil acts to accomplish his promises. He fulfilled his word, like, for instance, Isaiah 53, that God's servant, the Messiah, would suffer, would would bear our stripes so we could be healed. So God used their sinful, evil rejection of Christ actually to keep His promises. Which is just an incredible picture of the kindness of our God, the sovereignty of our God, that He does not allow our sin to thwart or to stop or to change His perfect plans. Despite our sin, God keeps His promises in Jesus. As with the Israelites, He continued to unfold His kindness to provide a King and a Savior who could actually save them from their sins, even though they'd put Him to death. We have a lot of promises that we work with in life. You've had them on product warranties before, right? Or uh, return policies, right? Some statement of guarantee that you'll be able to return this item. I bought an item recently that's brand new, you know, expected it to work just right. And the company seemed to have a good return policy in case there were any issues. And so I began using the item. And uh, it just wasn't working right And so, kind of looked inside and tried to figure out what was going on with it, and things were not working as they should have worked. So I reached out to the company and I said, hey, it's broken, it's not working right, I need to return the item. And so they asked, well, have have you used the item? 
I said, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I turned it on to see if it worked, and it wasn't working right, so I need to return it. I said, oh, well, you've used the item, no returns. Well, come on, I mean, how was I supposed to know it was broken unless I used it? You know, you've got to let me return this thing. Nope, I'm sorry. You can talk to the manufacturer and see if they'll do anything for you. Okay, <laughs> so there goes that. No returns, right? What I thought was a great return policy turns out psh, nothing. And so you're stuck with the item. Thankfully, the manufacturer's warranty was still in place, and I'm still waiting for them to repair the item. We'll see how that goes. I'll I'll keep you posted, right? (laughs) Promises don't always turn out the way we expect them to. And little did I know that by opening it up and trying it out, I was voiding the return policy that I was depending on. But aren't you thankful that no matter what we do, we do not void the promises of God? Our sin cannot thwart His promises. He always accomplishes His word. And this is Peter's hope for them as the sermon begins to turn. Though you killed the Prince of Life, God used it to fulfill His word that the Messiah would suffer and die for His people. And now He's risen from the grave. And so this comes now to verse 19 where this powerful part of the sermon comes as Peter shares with them the gospel and encourages them to turn to Jesus in faith. To receive the promised blessing of God's salvation. Though they had messed it up, God kept His word. And now these people could turn to Jesus in faith. And so in verse 19, He tells them to repent. We know that word. We studied it last week. It's to turn from our sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses another word here, converted. To not be what you used to be and to be something new. They would go from being rejecters of Jesus to believers in Jesus. Turning from their sin to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these words mean as Peter encourages them to turn from what they had done in crucifying the Lord Jesus and to trust now in Jesus as Messiah. The result of this repentance is beautiful. Peter says that your sins may be blotted out. (laughs) You murdered him, but God's willing to wipe those sins away if you just turn to Christ in faith. Now, he mentions another result of this repentance. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, as we as members of the church who've trusted in Christ, we we know that personally there are those times of refreshing that come as a result of our salvation, right? We're right with God. And so we're, we're refreshed in that sense. We're at peace with God. And that's true, but I actually don't think that's exactly what Peter has in mind here. Because in verse 20, he breaks down a little more of what he's talking about. He says, And that He, God, may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. So I think these times of refreshing, these times of restoration are not just personally being right with God. I think Peter is actually offering the kingdom to Israel. 
He's speaking to these men of Israel who'd rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, now that Jesus has risen from the grave, there's one final offer to them. You still have hope. You can repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And what God promised from the past will come. What had God spoken of to Israel in, through every single one of the prophets? The messianic kingdom. That if they would turn to Him in faith, God would send the Messiah. If they would repent of their sins, the Messiah would come and they would enter into the kingdom. That's the promise that every single one of the prophets talks about. And so Peter here is saying, look, if you'll repent, if you'll you'll turn to Christ as Messiah, the kingdom could come even now. God keeps His promises. As we'll see in chapter 4, Israel as a nation rejects the Lord Jesus. In fact, they arrest Peter and John, and we'll study that story next week. But praise God, some individuals repent. And this is another transition point between God's program with Israel to begin to offer them the kingdom through the Messiah, shifting now over to God's program for the church That God, through the Messiah of Israel, would be a light of salvation even to the Gentiles. This was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus had said this would happen in Matthew 23, and Paul talks about it in Romans 11, and that, that salvation would come to the Gentiles. And it's because of the rejection of the Messiah by Israel. Peter begins to continue to prove to them in verses 22 and following some examples of the prophets talking about the day of the Messiah. Verse 23, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 where Moses talked about the prophet who would come like him. But this prophet would have all authority so that those who listened to him would be saved. Those who rejected his teaching would be destroyed. That's in verses 22 and 23. Then in verse 24, he talks about more prophets. He mentions Samuel the prophet, who had predicted specifically that it, was, it would be one of David's seed, one of David's sons, who would reign in the Messianic kingdom. Who would that be? Of course, Jesus, a son of David. And so the prophets looked forward to this Messiah and the day in which he would reign in the kingdom of Israel. So verse 25 Peter concludes his sermon by saying, You're sons of the prophets and of the covenant. You're Israelites, which God had made this promise, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's, he's, he's begging them to trust in the Messiah. God has fulfilled his promise. But there's also a hint here at what's going to happen as the church begins to be established because all nations of the earth will be blessed. And though Israel should have been that seed of Abraham through which God blessed the earth, it's now becoming clear that seed is just Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so salvation indeed comes to all people, not just to Israel. And so Peter closes, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from the iniquities of your sin. What was the blessing of Abraham in Jesus? Forgiveness of sins. 
And it's come to the Jews first because that's what God promised. But as they reject Him, it goes then to all people and anyone who will trust in Christ as Savior, turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, finds forgiveness of sins, having their sins washed away. And so this is the great blessing of God's salvation to all those who turn to Jesus in faith. Friends, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and receive the promised blessing of God's salvation. There is no more powerful work of God than to save a soul from eternity of torment in separation from Him. He gave His Son for this very purpose. He died for our sins, bearing our sins in His body, just as Isaiah 53 predicted. It was for our iniquities that He was wounded. He was crushed so that we could have life. And so when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are washed away. We receive God's righteousness. And so we're at peace with God. We're right with Him. We become His children. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is how we receive the promised blessing of God's salvation. But as we close, know that God is still working powerfully through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, salvation may be that greatest way that He does that as He brings hearts to repentance. And we'll see in chapter 4 as this happens in a massive way as another 2,000 individuals turn to faith in Christ. Miraculous work of the power of God. But friends, God still works today through faith. If you want to see God powerfully at work in your life, then turn to Jesus in faith. Maybe you find yourself gripped by worry. Anxiety presses down upon you. God can set you free from worry. Turn to Jesus in faith. When anxieties oppress your mind, take them immediately to the Lord. Cast your cares upon Him. Entrust them to Him. And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind just as He promised. When you're bursting with anger, turn to Jesus in faith. At the root, when we are angry, we're we're really upset with what a sovereign God has allowed in our lives. So quiet your anger by turning to Jesus in faith. Remember, His name is just and righteous. He's the Holy One. He's the Judge. He's the Sovereign. Trust Him and abandon your anger. Maybe you're harboring bitterness about the sin someone else has committed against you and are unwilling to forgive. Remember that Jesus is the Holy One. Only He is sinless. He used that holiness to forgive you of your sins by dying in your place. And He calls you to forgive others just as He forgave you. So trust Him and bury your bitterness by granting forgiveness. Maybe you're afraid of all the things. Remember that Jesus is the one who saves. It's what His name means. He's always with you, so you need not fear. Trust Him and quiet your fears. Maybe you're struggling with lust. 
coveting what is not yours, desiring what is sinful. Conquer the sinful longings of your flesh by trusting in Jesus. He is all that you need. He satisfies your desires. He provides perfectly for you. Trust Him and conquer lust. Maybe you're bound by an addiction, having trouble kicking your destructive habit. God has chosen Jesus to be the Savior, to bring prisoners out of prison, as Isaiah 42 reminds us about this servant of God, the Messiah. Look to Jesus, trust Him, and walk by faith. Find freedom from your sin. Maybe you're facing grief. Look to the author of life. Whether you face the death of a loved one, the death of a dream, the death of a hope. Grief is a difficult experience. Look to the author of life. He is the source of life and hope and joy. Not even death could keep him down. He lives and he lives forevermore. And he will raise us to life. Trust in him. God is still powerfully at work today. And you want to connect to that power, turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Trust Him. Take Him at His word. He keeps His word no matter how we respond, no matter what, he do, what we do. He is faithful, He is good, He is loving, and He sent us His Son as our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are at work today. We praise you for being a God that keeps your word. And by sending the Lord Jesus Christ, you have proved your word and your love to us. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that you'd help us to trust you with the ups and downs of life, with the challenges we face. We want to see your power at work. Well, give us eyes to see the ways that you are working in hearts, the way that you are granting repentance, changing us into the image of Christ. And may we trust you and glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.